This is the Edinburgh Reporter podcast, and today I'm joined by Transport and Environment Convener, Councillor Leslie McInnes. Leslie, yours is a very big job. Uh, yes, it is. Um, lots to do, lots of people to discuss things with, lots of decisions to be made. It is indeed. And this week um, on Thursday, you've got yet another pretty big agenda for uh, your Transport and Environment Committee meeting, generally called Tech by people in the know. And um, one of the things on the agenda that I really wanted to speak to you about is the Spaces for People programme. Spaces for People is a £5.25 million piece of funding from the Scottish Government, um, all backed really by the initial announcement by the UK Government um, the transport minister there, Grant Shapps, and it was in response to COVID. And so all these emergency measures have been on the ground during the last year. Some are just being put in, actually, on Broughton Street, places like that. Um, and now you've been advised by council officers what to do, where to take them out, where to retain them, and that kind of thing. So first of all, out of the 5.25 million, have you spent it all? Not quite. Uh, is the answer to that. Um, we've held some back uh, because clearly we've got now got a transition period to go through. As we examine exactly what we want to try and retain out of these measures, what we think will do good for the city going forward. And indeed, actually, that's been one of the clear bits of guidance that we've had coming out of the Scottish Government, which is having made this investment in these temporary measures to help ease um, things around uh, during the COVID period, what happens at the end of those? And the general consensus from everybody from, you know, the, the Conservative spokesperson in Hollywood is saying the same thing, Scottish government is saying the same thing, the UK government is saying the same thing about their separate but similar schemes. What can we retain and have as a benefit for the city going forward? So as a result of which we've held back some of the funding to help us through that transition period, uh, either to take some stuff out if that's what is needed and that's a relatively low cost, or how to move forward to t turning some of those into longer-term projects. And, and now uh, we've got a, a massive list. It would be very boring if we went through every single one uh, that's being taken out or um, retained. But in, and perhaps going back a little bit to the beginning, you had a consultation, a public consultation. You got 17,600 responses to that. Um, and that was all members of the public from wherever. And you also ran a piece of market research on these measures. And it's from all of that that council officers have, have considered and decided upon their recommendations to you. And of course, we've still got to have the meeting and you still got to get your, um, your proposals passed. Mm. And perhaps there will be opposition parties who will have um, opposition amendments. I'm sure there will be. So one of the very first things I wanted to ask you then actually about the market research was um, there was only 600 people asked for their views. So why is that, in your view, a more uh, reliable guide as to what the public really thinks and wants? I, th I think this is something that's caused quite a lot of, of confusion and I think it's really helpful to have to clear it up. Essentially, the, the comparison between the two pieces, the public consultation, which, as you said, brought in a lot of response, um, and the independent market research that we did, 
it's they, they serve two different purposes in a way, but both building towards that picture that has produced the officer recommendations. So the public consultation with its just over uh, 17,600 uh, responses, that's been really helpful in, in looking at two things. One is a sort of general principle of what, what type of measures do we want to keep in? Do we want to keep in measures around schools? Do we want to keep in the shopping streets? Do we want to keep in spaces for exercise or some of the, um, the safe travelling, we call it, um, which is essentially a lot of segregated cycle lanes in particular, but some pedestrian walkways and so on around longer routes, uh, you know, the standard commuting A to B kind of routes. So it's been really helpful in that sense of getting a feel for the types of, of interventions that people want to keep. But the consultation was also really helpful in digging down into what people thought about the smaller component parts of the schemes. So what was it that local people thought about their patch or street that was impacted by a particular form of scheme? What did um, communities who knew the measures that we put in around schools think about that? Now, of course, the consultation was by its very nature self-selecting. It was people who were interested in the topic who made their way to the consultation hub and filled in the form and gave us their views. Now, that's a very helpful piece of understanding that we're getting coming out of that. But alongside it, starting at the same time, we put in place um, an independent market research piece because what we knew was we had to get something that reflected the overall Edinburgh demographic better. Now, one of the factors, for example, that showed up differently in those two different pieces is that in the self-selecting public consultation piece, it was heavily weighted towards an older age group in terms of the number of respondents and, and so on. Of course, we've got adults from 18 upwards in, in the city. We've got heavy preponderance of youth, of youth uh, in, 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 uh, in the city. We had to find a way to understand that better. So the weighted... Um, independent market research allowed that voice to come through more strongly because we made sure that we had more people who fell into that age category. So that's the kind of difference between those two methods. Both of them were done at the same time, uh, broadly the same questions answered, but the independent market research has actually been very helpful to us, not so much in terms of the local schemes because the sample size wasn't big enough there, but to, again, to help us understand the broad themes of what people wanted. And interestingly enough, in terms of the public consultation and the market research, for example, the, both of those concurred on retention of school schemes. Everybody seemed to be able to agree with that, apart from businesses. The business section, the business stakeholders that we, we had, we had 179, and they were universally against almost everything that we did, including school schemes which seems to me a little odd because I don't quite understand how many businesses would actually be directly impacted by the measures we put in around safe gathering near school gates, safe passage for kids in, in and out of playgrounds and so on. So that was quite an interesting anomaly. So there's been a few things that have emerged across those bits of work where our officers have done a very diligent job in terms of trying to analyse what's emerged from those three pieces. Now, I'm conscious I'm, I'm sort of talking too much length about this, but there's a couple of other pieces that go towards the information that's been used to bring forward these officer recommendations. 
So the other two bits alongside the consultation and the market research was it back in January when we first mooted the idea of transferring some of these into a more permanent basis using experimental traffic determination orders. We also agreed back in January a set of assessment criteria that the officers would use to understand better whether or not these were actually delivering for us, in either in general terms or in, or in specific aspects. So that's fed into the officer recommendations that have come forward now. And that's been a big piece of work for officers to try and understand whether or not the schemes actually deliver against things like benefiting people who walk, benefiting people who cycle, benefiting you know, all sorts of aspects. And then the fourth part is looking at how well retaining some of these schemes would fit within our longer term, more strategic approach to transport development in the city. How we move people and goods around the city is a big question for this city and any other city. As we go forward, how do we do that in a sustainable way is the sort of crux of the matter. And so what we've got to do is look at what we retain out of spaces for people, if anything. You know, we're obviously looking at officer recommendations, but what is what it is that we retain? How well does that fit within the general direction of travel that we've got around transport policy? So I'm sorry, Phyllis, that was an enormous mouthful of information, but it's those four things that are really important in terms of underpinning those officer recommendations. I, th- I think it's really, I think it's useful and it's in, it's, I think it's important actually to understand that these things are not just made up on the hoof and actually, um, you know, there is a lot of thought goes behind them and that actually in, even in January this year, you'd already decided that you were going to have a different process so just to be a little bit technical, and I'm going to try and do this as briefly as I can, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. At the present time, the spaces for people measures are on the street and they are put in by something called a TTRO, which is a temporary travel regulation order. And that's in response to the pandemic. And moving forward from now, the measures may well be or look the same. It may be the same black and white poles on the same bit of road, but actually they're going to be something quite different. They're going to be put in under an experimental traffic regulation order, which is an ETRO. And that uh, mean it, it's, it responds to something quite different. And it means that you are um, trying things out and you're trying things out within your mobility, city mobility plan umbrella and all the trans, all the various transport policies that Pencil has. So, so from after Thursday, let's just say, there may well be some spaces for people measures still on the ground um, and they will be there until the need for them vanishes in terms of public health. But at the same time, moving forward from Thursday onwards, uh, you're going to have perhaps you're probably you're possibly going to take some of them up. You're going to take up, for example, in George on George the Fourth Bridge, and you're probably going to put some new ones in. But they're going to be there on a completely different basis where you know the measures that will be removed why are they being removed why why are you taking them up for example on george the fourth bridge well just before i get into the detail of that phyllis can i can i just kind of encapsulate where we are because i know that for anybody who's looking in from outside who's not involved in the detail of spaces for people now 
the, you're absolutely right. These measures have been put in the different parts of the statutory framework that we normally operate in. Now, the TTROs that you refer to, the temporary traffic redetermination orders that the original ones went in under, um, because of the public health guidance, so they, they last a particular time, 18 months. We will keep those in place because that 18 months hasn't run out yet. We'll keep those in place as long as the public health guidance tells us to. We will then shift some of them onto experimental traffic redetermination orders. Now, again, that's a that's a means of allowing us to keep stuff on on, uh, on in place, allow us to keep monitoring the impact, learn from that, learn the lessons attached to that, before we then shift to turning them into traffic redetermination orders, which again is another part of the statutory framework. It's, it's so boring for everybody except transport geeks, but it governs what we're able to do and not do around this. And I know that for most people in the public, they just don't get why we can't act in a particular way that they want us to. And often it comes down to the need to follow this framework. When we shift to the TROs, it brings with it, for example, um, um, lots of requirement on us as a local authority to have consultation with the local communities that are impacted in general terms as well. So the, the, by going into the experimental TROs, it buys us a bit of space there to observe the impact of the measures for longer. And then it informs how we write up the longer term traffic redetermination orders. And then that allows us to take into account much more people's experience, feelings, um, expectations around what we're doing on our roads. So sorry to be a bit complicated for all of that. Now, you mentioned in your piece earlier on about as of Thursday, you know, well, in actual fact, I don't think we'll see much change in the road after any decisions made for a couple of reasons. Although we'll have the detailed discussion at Transport and Environment Committee next Thursday, the report is automatically being referred on to Food Council, which is the following week. So we'll have a second bite at the, the, the cherry of discussion uh, as we go forward into that piece. And it's after then that we'll have a clear direction going forward. But while the public health guidance is in place, people won't see much difference. They will, they will see it as we get towards the end of that and you'll start to see some schemes disappearing. So, so if you were to think of the starting point at March 2020, then um, March by September, all of the spaces for people measures really would have to come out if, if you did nothing about them. Not, not strictly speaking, because in fact, we didn't get, we didn't actually start putting things on the ground until the very earliest of our schemes were going in in May of last year. Uh, and they were quite limited in nature. The other ones followed on. And so the, the temporary traffic redetermination orders were linked to each of the schemes. So there's a bit of a, there's no one sort of, you know, fall off a cliff date when everything has to come out. It's much more varied than that. Okay. So, um, you know, going, so anyway, going forward, however, you have found a way to try and perhaps save some of the investment that has already been made in on our streets. Um, and so one of the things that um, I believe you're keeping is all the segregated cycleways. And there's about uh, 39 kilometers of that on our roads. And um, so 
that I think you are keeping because those are near hospitals and various other places. But there are some that you are not keeping, I'm sure, too. It, th th there's a whole variety of things. If we go back to that sort of the, the, the different types of mechanisms that have gone in. So the measures outside most of the schools will be keeping in one form or another. Some of that will be in consultation with the specific school communities to maybe either tweak them or to make reasonably substantial changes. But the principle behind the school's measures will stay in place. Um, interesting enough, when we look at the shopping streets, what we call the shopping streets, you know, we have these sort of town centre pieces around Edinburgh. And so we've had some temporary measures in there, prim primarily around extending the walkway, you know, the, the pavements. Um, but it's also some segregated um, uh, cycle lanes in some of the spots. Um, and that's had an impact around loading and parking and so on, of course. Because of the very loud voices that we heard from the business community who want to remove those, then that is in essence what we're going to be doing. There'll be two or three spots. There's one in particular I'm thinking about on Morningside Road, for example, um, just opposite Waitrose, where there's a traditionally been a very narrow, very difficult pavement. I think we're going to look at keeping that one in place. Um, so there's a couple of spots around that, but for the ma vast majority of the shopping streets, we've listened to what's been said, and we're going to remove those. Now, interesting enough, to refer back to that wider bit about transport, you can also refer back to the wider bit about how the council is developing what we term grandly placemaking, but in act for everybody else, it's how, how a place looks. And what we are shifting to within the council is an emphasis around 20-minute neighbourhoods, which allow people to, to walk to wherever they need to get services within 20, a 10-minute there, 10-minute back walk. A lot of the develop, future developments that are coming around the shopping streets will be as part of that 20-minute neighbourhood development, for example. So it's not that suddenly everything goes back to you know, the status quo and never changes again. There are other ways of us looking at developing the city to better suit the needs of the people as we're going forward. But it's probably quite useful to say at this point that actually um, any changes that you do make to shopping streets in places like Morningside and Stockbridge, which are, those are the ones that I have in my head, um, they, they will be made with full consultation and with um, and it, the whole thing about experimental traffic orders is that you can actually change them while trying them, et cetera, so that you can re react to uh, any of the, the comments from the business community. Um, and um, so, but to go back to my point about the cycle lanes, I believe that most of the cycle lanes are being retained. The segregated cycle lanes are being retained with the black poles and with those things which are called orcas underneath them, the black the black thing pieces. In them. Yes, that, that's right. There've been, there've been an awful lot of complaints about this, but I think it's worthwhile looking at why they're there. And of course they've been put in as part of a temporary set of measures. So by, by absolute logic, we can't put in permanent measures. And permanent measures would look better. Um, they, would be, they couldn't be sabotaged, which we've seen happen on quite a lot of these. We've had people really taking a really, um, how will I put it, a proactive approach to removing these on a regular basis. So if they were put in on a permanent basis, that would change the nature of them. And we can't do that given the powers that we've put them in under. It would only be when we've gone through the TRO process 
which involves all the consultation, involves the proper processes, the ones that we're used to around making changes to the road, that we would then shift to more permanent infrastructure. Um, I keep quoting Paris because they have put in some, some uh, I mean, they're, they're doing phenomenal work in terms of changing the sustainability of the transport in the city centre. I mean, they're removing 70,000 car parking spaces. It's probably more than we have in the city. <laughs> I, I, I suspect so, yes. I can't remember the exact figure we've got, but, but it's something like that. But they're doing that in the city, their city centre in order to replace it with greater sustainability for pedestrians and cyclists and, and various uh, other means of getting around. But what they've been able to do in a lot of their locations is to put in you know, beautiful granites, um, blo- um, granite um, um, blocks between cycle, protected cycle lanes and the roadway and so on. That's the kind of thing I would dearly have loved to have done from the very beginning. But we wouldn't have been able to under either the funding, because it's very expensive, or under the measures, because they're essentially temporary. So once we've talked to the city, once we've established that those are in the city, you'll see those wands disappear and you'll see them being replaced over time with um, more permanent uh, and, and better looking uh, parts. That's certainly one of the biggest criticisms has been that, you know, the, the cones, first of all, of course, were very messy. Um, secondly, the red and white wands are easily detachable. I have met people actually detaching them and uh, throwing them uh, in various directions. And even the black and white poles with the orcas at the bottom are, you know, they, they, they do lead to a little bit of street clutter. And another part of the Spaces for People project was actually to reduce street clutter. Have you ended that part yet? Have you got to the end of that yet? Or is that just ongoing? We've done the vast majority of it. Um, I don't know if, if you're aware, Phyllis, but, you know, in general, we've been trying to move ourselves towards a situation in, in across a number of council policies to try and reduce street clutter, at least that, the, the clutter that's under our control, essentially. So, for example, we recently, when a couple of years ago, we introduced an A-board ban. That's, you know, the advertising boards that sit outside shops and restaurants and so on, which was particularly problematic in the city centre especially for you know, tight spaces like the South Bridge, for example, or where you've got a large groups of people mingling you know, during the festival, for example, in the High Street, you know, various spots around the city centre, including in our town centres. Where I live in Gilmerton, I, you know, we saw A-boards out on narrow pavements and so on, always causing problems for people who have got either mobility difficulties or people who are moving around in a large crowd um, or people with sight difficulties real problems. So we removed those and that's made an enormous difference to the ease of people moving around the city. So it's something of a similar kind of reasoning that went behind the street clutter that, that removal that went on under Spaces for People. And we did it in conjunction with Living Streets Edinburgh, which is one of the charities that is looking at trying to improve the walking experience and, and trying to improve facilities for, for people in Edinburgh. Um, and they were able to give us advice on what they thought were problem areas. And we've gone in and removed redundant poles, um, you know, old signage that we didn't need, you know, that type of thing. Some street clutter we can't do um, because, for example, old telephone boxes we can't shift, um, you know, things like that, uh, which are a problem for us. But in gradual terms, the bits we could control, we've done quite a bit of work on. Yeah, and you've taken away some of the railings and things where pavements are narrower, that kind of thing. Um, 
So if we were to try and um, sum up <laughs> somehow, I don't really know how we sum all of this up in, into one, one um, message, but um, give me, the, if I ask you maybe about the, the, the measures which are proposed to stay in place. Now, these are things like Victoria Street, Coburn Street, which have been sort of soft pedestrian-only spaces. I mean, there are cars there. We all know that cars go in there, sometimes in error and sometimes meaning to. Um, and then, of course, we've got um, areas like Silvernose Road and Braid Road, where there has been a lot of criticism of the council for putting measures in on those those two last streets. The, the, the reasoning, if we want to sum it all up, the reasoning for keeping any of the spaces for people measures is, as you have said, fourfold. It's, um, it fits into the, the council's transport policies. Um, it, can be put, it can be retained under the experimental scheme, which we've talked about, and also you're now informed by what the council officers have considered as a result of the public consultation and the market research. Is this a good place to be now? Are we in a good place with um, the, with our city streets? Because, and I really want to give you the opportunity actually to say something about the additional money for potholes. Because if I if I was asking a member of the public this question, what do you think about city streets right now? They would just say, well, there are loads of places that there are huge potholes. I know this myself. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> potholes is one of those perennial subjects that comes back again and again and I understand why people look at what's happening on the streets that they use, they see potholes emerging, they're unhappy with it are concerned about possible damage to their vehicles, safety and so on the one thing I would say is that in common with most cities we are seeing a vast increase in the amount of traffic on our streets and in fact an increased heaviness, if you look at I've quoted this before but if you look at the size of a mini now versus a mini in the 70s, you know, yeah. you're talking about quite an increase in weight and size and so on. And that does make a difference in our roads. It's also not helped by this winter. We had a particularly bad extended period of winter weather and that had a massive impact on our road structure. Now, in recognition of that, we, first of all, a couple of years ago, changed how we went around doing potholes replacements. So we've changed our methods to try and improve, first of all, the weight of pothole filling uh, and the length that those uh, that, that repair work can last. And it's a difference in how we do it. Some of it we have to respond to really quickly because it's a real danger. We have to get filled within 24 hours. That doesn't allow us to put in a permanent one. So it's, it's that sort of balance act that we've always had. This time around, courtesy of some extra money coming from the Scottish Government, I was able to argue that we needed to spend a bit more money on our roads. So on top of the £100 million budget that we allocated to road repair in its all its forms across this administrative term for this council, that's across five years, this year we've added an additional £6 million, £2 million of which will go specifically on pothole repair. Now, I and that will be done this year. And I, I really hope that by the end of the year, people will genuinely see a difference in the way in which we've been able to repair the roads, the numbers of potholes we've been able to fill and their general driving experience around it. I hope, however, 
but it's coupled at the same time with a reduction in the number of journeys that we're making in Edinburgh because we have to find a way to limit the number of short journeys that could be done by another way or the number of cars coming into the city because we just have too many cars at the moment and the impact on roads is it's just not up for debate. You can see it every day in every pothole. It's the impact of vehicles. So we have to get a balance right, get our repairs sorted and, and sort out what we're doing around giving people more choice to travel without a, the use of a vehicle. And of course, moving forward, you're going to have um, the 20-minute neighbourhoods, which you've touched on, um, and the city centre transformation scheme, um, which is basically George Street. George Street almost becoming pedestrianised and not quite, and uh, you know, leaving room for people with people with blue badges, that kind of thing. So you know, the criticism against you is that you want rid of all cars and that you want everybody to go on a bike. And I've heard you saying this before and probably written it before, that of course you don't expect everybody to go on a bike because not everybody can. But if even some people do, then it does take some traffic off the roads and and would help. So if we were looking a little bit to the future, um, the council elections are next May. What would you hope to tr- hope to have achieved by next May. And of course, that all sits within this very complex uh, government statutory process of actually getting the permissions in place to actually change anything on a road. So by this time next, by May next year, um, what would you have hoped to have on these? A few things, I suppose. I, I would hope that we would be further forward in the process of understanding the impact of the temporary schemes that we're trying to continue under um, um, experimental TROs. So we've got a much clearer picture about what it is that the city would benefit from. Because for me, it's all about progress and building in benefit. I know an awful lot of the voices who look at spaces for people at the moment see only negatives. But actually, in the longer term, I think we're building towards something that changes the nature of the city that takes those people who who want to and who can out of cars and into other means of getting around the city. And their choices to be able to do that actually benefit everybody else. So in no way is this council administration or me personally saying, you know, everybody in the world has got to buy a bike. You know, I mean, it, it would be utterly daft for me to be saying that. Because there will always be circumstances, whether it's people who've got mobility issues, whether it's the elderly, whether it, you know, whatever reason. But I think what we need to do is to start to articulate the fact that if people have choices, because we build infrastructure like protected cycleways, like wider pavements, like whatever uh, aspect of space of people, then people can make those choices if they want to. At the moment, they can't because safety on the road is really poor. I cycle a lot myself and, you know, I'm experienced and my heart is in my mouth sometimes. I would not take an eight-year-old child out on some of our paths. I want our kids to be able to choose to cycle to school if that's what they want to do. At the moment, we're not giving them that choice. We're telling them it's not safe. We're telling them the air is too poor to breathe. All of these things are sitting within transport policy and all of those things, I think, are something that we can articulate to the city and get more people to understand 
that we will not make progress by not changing things. We will make progress by grasping the problem and finding good solutions for it that suit as many people as possible. Sorry, that was a very lengthy <laughs> chunk of things, Phyllis, but that, that's essentially I'm wanting us to get to as a city. Well, it's, a, it's a lofty ambition. And, you know, we haven't even we haven't even talked about some of the other things which are on the agenda for this week, week's meeting, um, which are things like the low emission zone, which you're hoping to put in place in the city centre, um, which, again, all of these things have to sit within the air quality management and also all of the other transport policies that the council has already agreed upon and is marching forward with. Um, so uh, perhaps uh, perhaps we'll have uh, a gas about low emission zones. That's a terrible pun. Um, during, uh, when, you, when you come on our podcast next time. I'd be delighted. I'd be, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff happening. And um, I think the more people who know about it, the better. Absolutely. Councillor Leslie McInnes, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you so much for listening to the Edinburgh Report. Listen out for more episodes coming soon and make sure you don't miss any by hitting the subscribe button now. This is one of the platforms where we can help advertise your business to our listeners would you like to know more about that? Then email editor at theedinburghreporter.co.uk. And remember, you can subscribe to have our monthly newspaper delivered to you direct. Sign up today on our website, www.theedinburghreporter.co.uk.